Father, as we contemplate the painful issue of falling away from Christ and friends we might know who are in that position and our own potential for the future, we pray that you would give us grace, help us to see what you've got to say, help us to take to heart your message, both your warning and uh, the great things you've got to say to encourage us in our faith. As we come to Hebrews this morning, please open our hearts to cherish you first and foremost in our lives, that nothing might get in the way. Amen. Well, we can probably all think of people who at some point appeared to be, they seemed such strong Christians. They were going gangbusters in their faith. They loved church. They were involved in various ministries. Maybe they were leaders and things, but who no longer walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, two of the people who had an enormous impact on my own uh, coming to Christ in late high school, who taught me about Jesus, who encouraged me to go to youth group and so on, uh, are now self-proclaimed atheists. Uh, one of them was heavily involved in two different churches at the same time. He'd go to one in the morning and one at the night. He was in three different Bible studies groups. He was always chatting at lunchtime about faith and inviting people to come to church. But after uni, he was unemployed for a year and a half and that battered his self-confidence. And then from there, well, it seemed to batter his faith. And uh, now he's an avowed atheist these years later. The other was a Christian leader in his church. Uh, he, he married a wonderful, lovely, beautiful Christian woman uh, who's a f- fantastic encouragement to him. Uh, he was involved in Christian publishing. Uh, and then some years later, uh, for whatever reason, he had an affair. And now he has not just left his wife and child, but left the Lord Jesus Christ too. Uh, and again, he's an avowed atheist. Now, my guess is that we probably all know someone in that kind of position, maybe not someone as gung-ho as that, but people who have called themselves Christians, seem to be Christians, everyone regards as Christians, who you value as Christian friend, who no longer walk with the Lord. Uh, maybe it was because of some sin in their life. Maybe it was a terrible experience that they had. Maybe it was because of some theological question they just couldn't resolve, something to do with the Bible's teaching. Maybe it was embarrassment or opposition. Uh, maybe, and perhaps most commonly, it was just that the issues of life got in the way and their focus turned off God and it wasn't one thing, it was just a series of small decisions and they drifted away as those other things took over. The care and concerns of this life, uh, the pleasures that are out there, whatever it may, Jesus warns about all those things, doesn't he? And even thinking of those people now might make you really sad. It makes me incredibly sad thinking about these two guys and, and there's many more I, could, I, I can think of who've given up the faith. But as we open up the book of Hebrews again after a three-month break, we can see it's a topic that God doesn't want us to avoid because it's painful and because it's sad. He wants us to think it through. And in fact, he's got some powerful things to say about it with both a warning and with some incredible promises of hope uh, on this subject of falling away. And while what we look at today might well raise for you many questions about those people that we know and, and what to do or to say or even what to pray for them, uh, it, it's really a message from God to us so that we won't go that way ourselves. 
But instead, what we'll do is we'll cherish him and put him first in our hearts, in our lives, and and recommit to him who is the lover of our souls. And perhaps uh, that is something you need to hear right now as we enter into yet another looking like a long lockdown uh, where there are very real opportunities, aren't there, for selfishness when you're just hanging out by yourself or with your own family, uh, but also uh, opportunities for despair about God and where is he in my life and yeah, whether he's with us. Uh, both those things are great dangers, aren't they, in these times of lockdown and both of us could lead to us falling away. And if you think back to the first few chapters uh, of Hebrews, which we looked at before Easter, you might recall that this letter to the Hebrews was written by someone who was deeply, deeply concerned that his original readers were in grave danger of walking away from Jesus, walking away from Christianity, abandoning their faith in Christ. Uh, they were Jews who converted into Christianity They'd accepted that Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament had always been pointing to and had promised and they embraced him, they loved him. But now some years later, they were having very strong doubts, second thoughts about it and they were on the verge of deliberately turning away, turning away from Jesus, turning back to the Judaism from which they'd come. In their case, they were drifting away because of persecution and opposition that had come and going back to Judaism was much more acceptable, much more entrenched in the society, even outside of Israel. It was much more accepted. It meant that friends and family would embrace them once again. And not only would the pain stop, but they, they figured that Judaism, well, that's from God anyway, isn't it? And they, they had so much going for it. When you look back, you think, well, actually, there's they've got priests and temples and sacrifices, all these things that, that guarantee our relationship with God. I'm pretty sure that's what the Old Testament promises and they're visible, they're tangible, we can do them and we can know that we're in the right religion and so that's where their heart is going. And so again and again the writer appeals to his readers not to shrink back, to take care lest there be in them an unbelieving heart, to strive to enter the future world that God has in store for his people, to hold fast not to enter into disobedience, to hold fast to their confidence, to hold fast to their original confidence, to have the full assurance of faith until the end, and most especially to have firmly implanted in their brains and in their hearts the fact that Jesus is everything that you could ever need or want. Why would you give up on him? He is greater than the angels in heaven, more glorious. He is greater than Moses who led the people out of slavery in Egypt. He is greater even than the entire priesthood of Israel, which is where we left off at uh, the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5 just before Easter. Jesus is the greatest and the only priest that we need. In fact, he is the only one who can help us and deal with our sin and sympathise with us in our weakness better than any of the gurus of this world. Uh, Be they the spiritual advisors who are out there, the self-help gurus, the imams, the muftis, the sages, the prophets of secularism, or even the priests of Israel who, well, that was a religion handed down from God. He's not just better than all of them. He is infinitely superior. Why? 
Because 4 verse 14, Jesus actually passed through the heavens. Uh, normal high priests, they, they only get to work on this earth in human built temples. They don't get to deal with God directly himself in his presence. Why 4 verse 15? Because though he was tempted in every way, just like us, yet he was without sin. Right? Israel's high priests, they, they were sinners. Uh, and just like the people they were trying to help. And they can't help. It's, it's like a drug addict going to another drug addict for help to get off drugs. It's just not going to work. And so they fail. But the one without sin, he can help us. <clears throat> Why? Because chapter 5 and verse 8, he offers the one true sacrifice for sins, which is the only way by which we can come back to God. You see that in chapter 5? We'll pick it up in uh, well, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And we talked a lot about what it means for the Son of God to be perfected. That doesn't mean yeah, he was immoral and became moral. We already know he's without sin. But no, he became the perfect vehicle for our salvation, the only one that could do it. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other priest that can get us there. There's no other way to know God. There's, there's no other way to have life and to know the love of God than through Jesus. He is the source of eternal salvation. He is the wellspring. He is the fountain. But then the writer adds in the strangest thing, and this is the last thing we read just before he starts, which, which he knows is going to puzzle the readers of his letter, both the ones then and the ones now, he knows they're going to go, huh, what? Uh, it's in verse 10 of chapter 5. And so, you know, this high priest is the source of eternal salvation. And so he was declared by God a high priest, get this, according to the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> now, you might have been a Christian a long time. And this might well be new information to you. you know, where did that come from? What does that even mean? And not just new information, it's confusing as well. Who or what is a Melchizedek? <laughs> and what's a priest in the order of Melchizedek? And what's that got to do with the price of fish? Or, well, what's it got to do with anything? How is that supposed to fill me with hope and joy and keep me going as a Christian so that I don't drift away from the Lord? When I first read that many years ago, I was just reading through the book of Hebrews, uh, I hit that and went, huh, I don't know, and I closed my Bible and I didn't come back to it for a very, very long time, uh, which was a pity because it's not only something wonderful for our encouragement, but he's also going to explain what he means in chapter 7 and if I just held on, and we, we're coming to that next week, so, so that we're going to get there. But he knows this whole Melchizedek thing is going to be a shock and a puzzle because look at verse 11, which we pick up today. We have a great deal to say about this, that is this Melchizedek and Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek and it's difficult to explain <laughs> since you've become too lazy to understand. You get that? He, he knows that he's got... Stuff to say that's going to be hard to understand, it's going to be difficult to explain, it's going to take some work for him to do it and it's going to take even more work for us to grapple with and understand and, 
And it's particularly difficult because of the fear of persecution. That, that, that In that circumstance, who wants to sit down and do the hard work of working at the truth, working on theology and put, connecting the dots in the Bible? And, and it can be very hard work sometimes, can't it? Just generally to, to nut things in the Bible through and press for time and stuff. But it's work that needs doing. See, Christianity is at one and the same time incredibly simple and incredibly complex. Uh, Christianity at its heart is such a simple message that even a child can understand and accept it. I deserve God's judgment, but Jesus died for me to bring me to God. He died, he's alive again, I can have forgiveness, God's my friend. That, that's the gospel and, and it gives hope and it's not complicated being a Christian is not a matter of, being, of how brainy you are. It, it's, it's so simple and it's so great and wonderful. But that doesn't mean that everything about Christianity is simple or the, the, the moment you believe that Jesus died, you, that the whole Bible is instantly going to make complete sense. This is God's word to us and we've got to work at it. You've got to grow and mature. There's learning to do and and you do that by persistent, thoughtful reflection on God's word, mulling it over, teasing it apart, joining the dots, looking through Old and New Testament and seeing how it works. When you come to something that you don't understand, don't just, don't just give up on the Bible, right? And, and close it up and, and put it away and go, oh, that was a nice thought for the day. I don't know what God was saying to me. And, you know, God, please help me <laughs> be with me. That, that, that that really would be lazy, wouldn't it? No, God's calling us to do the work. There are always answers. Uh, there are some answers I'm still working at. I know they're there, um, but you'll find them if you're prepared to do the work. Being confused is okay, <laughs> but being too lazy to put in the off the effort to stop being confused and figure things out that's not okay. And the writer is shocked that. The readers he's writing to originally, they, they haven't grown up, that they haven't bothered. And so you get verse 12. Uh, Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about uh, righteousness because he's an infinite. But solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. What's he saying there? He says they're like little kids in their attitude to Jesus. You know, and kids can have faith and that's great and then they have just like little kids but, but they need to grow up. And maybe some of us need to grow up as well in our faith. If your entire knowledge and understanding of Jesus and Christianity is, is what you learned at Sunday school. Well, you've got to grow up. You've got to do some work. You've got to mature. There's so much more to know about the wonder of God and the Bible. There's a lifetime of learning to be done. We never stop being students. And so in chapter six, he says, okay, well, then let's, let's move on to some deeper stuff, to the adult stuff, stuff that you'll really have to wrestle with. And wrestle through, and then bam, he whacks out verse four. And it's a verse, chapter six, verse four, is a verse that has caused more ink to be spilled, uh, more books to be written, 
more debates to be had, more internet time, uh, more lengthy discussions in Bible study groups has locked them down for weeks. Uh, around the world, more than any other verse of the entire Bible. Are you ready for it? Chapter 6, verse 4, the adult stuff, the stuff you're going to have to work at, it's about this issue of falling away. 6, verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Now, on the one hand, it's not complicated at all. It's really pretty straightforward. What's he saying? You walk away from Christ, you can't come back. But what's caused so much ink to be spilled and so much consternation is is really the question of, of who is he talking about? Who is it that might fall under this dire, dire warning? Right? Is it talking about true Christians, real believers, people who really had salvation? Is he saying that people who have been restored to God, right with him, chosen by him, forgiven by him of their sins, can, can really fall away? Is that even possible? They were, they were forgiven and now they're not and they can't come back? Or is he saying that there's people who, who we all thought were Christians who seem to be part of things but actually their falling away proves that they were never really were genuine Christian in the heart and, and there's no hope for them. And people have gotten so caught up with that debate and, and maybe the subsequent one of, well, is there a sin? How, how would I know if I've committed the sin that can't be forgiven? You know, they've got caught up in that debate about whether it's actually possible for the elect to fall away or not and, and trying to reconcile their theological position and other passages like Ephesians 1, which talks about the infallibility of God's call, or Romans chapter 8, which talks about the impossibility of anything ever separating us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's such a wonderful passage. That, and, and they go, but how, how can that work? And they forget to actually listen to what God's saying here. Right? Just take, take on board what he's saying here. What is he saying? Don't fall away. Just don't do it. Nothing in this world is worth it. Let nothing come between you and God. Let nothing cause you to want to walk away from Jesus Christ. Let nothing derail your walk with him because there are dire consequences. It's like a sign by the side of the road that uh, you're coming on an unusual route to a bridge that you know well, like maybe the bridge over the the channel in Ingleburn, uh, but it's collapsed in a giant flood. And the sign says, bridge out. And you know what it means, don't you? It means don't go down this road, go another way because the bridge isn't there anymore and anyone who attempts 
to cross that bridge is going to fall down and die. Right? So turn around now. Turn back. The bridge is out. Now, you could be driving down the road and that floods happen and there's bridge out and roads blocked off and, and, and you could stop there on the side of the road and, and ponder the philosophical questions. Now, was there really a bridge there to start with? Um, is it possible that bridges can be out? Uh, you know, what, I've never been in a car that's actually fallen down a gap and so I'm not sure that's even possible. How, how, do, how do we really know that gravity is totally consistent everywhere in the world? And if I drove off that, that into that void, maybe, maybe gravity would not work there and I could just fly right across. Or, or maybe you could wonder that if, you know, if I just hit it at the right speed and the right angle, uh, whether I could prove that the sign is wrong. But, if you did stop on the side of the road and ponder those very philosophical questions, you're missing the point, aren't you, <laughs> right? It's, that would be mind-boggling to do. The point of the sign is, just don't do it. <laughs> right? The sign is there to make sure that no one drives through, that no one goes off the edge and that no one dies. Those who read the sign and believe the sign will turn around and go another way. And that's what God is saying to us here. And you can tell that that's what it's like because of what comes next. Because the chapter doesn't just end there with this terrifying warning and hopelessness. In fact, it ends with stunning, supreme, uncompromising confidence. Don't stop at verse 8 or you'll be shaken in your boots thinking, maybe I can lose my salvation. Read on. You look at verse 9. Even though we are speaking in this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. The word confident is is sure, we're sure of it, we're persuaded of it. And as he writes, he's actually sure that the people he's writing to are going to be saved, that it's not going to be this situation. He's not writing to them to make them doubt God. He's not writing to them to make them lose their certainty. On the contrary, he's writing them to urge them to hang on to their certainty because it's a matter of assurance. And you can tell because of how he ends the chapter in verse 19. See there, verse 19? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You really want to know that you're anchored and secure with God? Well, here's the real guts of the passage. It's not confusion, it's certainty. We're given three certainties in which to cling to, which will anchor our soul. Three certainties so that you can be sure where you stand with God, you can be secure in your relationship with him, and three certainties that mean you can remain that way. Let's look at them. The first one is fruitful faith. It's in verse 9. Even though we're speaking this way, dearly loved ones, in your case we're confident in the things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will become imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. He's talking about God's justice in remembering their love shown to other Christians, the way they've cared for our fellow believers. 
Because that is the evidence that God is at work in us. Uh, Jesus said, uh, you know, if uh, the greater come you know, to the disciples in John 13, to love one another. This is my command, love one another. God's spirit, God's word produces godliness in us and a harvest of righteousness. It's the work of the gospel in us planted to produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is, is well, think of it. What, what is the Spirit at work in us to do? Produce love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in our lives. Je- Jesus himself says you can tell a tree by its fruit. Right? He's not saying that you have to produce plums in order to become a plum tree. He's saying that if you're a plum tree, you'll produce plums. Right? Uh, we, we keep getting it the other way around. People keep getting confused. Uh, in order to be a Christian, I've got to start doing these things and go to church and love this person and do this kind of activity and give this much money. No, the Bible says if you want to start loving people, you've got to be a Christian. Right? You've got to be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. Then you'll really understand love and you'll understand church and you'll understand giving and all those other things. It's not be fruitful in order to be considered a Christian. It's be Christian in order to be fruitful. It's not have assurance in order to be a Christian. It's be a Christian in order to have assurance. God doesn't see people working hard and doing good and then think that he somehow owes them salvation. He's not sitting there going, oh man, I really didn't want to let that person into heaven, uh, but I've got him. Oh, they're doing the right thing again. Oh, I'm so frustrated. Right? He sees people who've already been saved and because they love him uh, for it, they're, they're concerned for his glory and they're transformed by it. And he's, that, that is, that's the fruit. In other words, God's in the business of proving to you and proving to the world that you are his. That's what God's doing. When you see changes in your life, when you're, what you're seeing is not the results of your own power, your own effort. What you're seeing is the miraculous work of God in you. You're seeing the work of the gospel transforming. You're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. That is the work of the Spirit to convict you of sin and to transform you into the likeness of God by pointing you to the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word of God are infinitely, intimately connected. So put your faith in Jesus. Trust Him and love each other and serve the saints and honour God and come to church because you have a salvation that can't be taken away from you. That's what you've been saved for. A life of God glorifying freedom. And even though we're going to stumble and fail from time to time, maybe some of us a lot, I, I hope that you can say with me, I may not be the man that you want me to be. I may, I'm not even the man that God wants me. I'm not even the man I want to be. But I thank God that I'm not the man that I once was. God's in the business of changing people. And when you see that there has been change, you look back and honestly ask the question, what is different now from when I came to Christ? You'll see the growth. It's, it's evident to everyone. should be evident to you. And fruitful faith, that's the first cause for assurance. But it's not the last one. The second one, the second certainty, the second cause for assurance is God's unbreakable promise. God has made promises. 
The whole point of the gospel is that our confidence and our hope doesn't reside in our own performance. It doesn't reside in a list of our achievements written somewhere, but it resides in the promise of God. And so listen to how he goes on in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Do you feel the weight of that, the power of that? God's promises are unbreakable. If you have fled to him for refuge, know that he is good for it. No storm can batter God. No, no storm. And it cannot batter you or your salvation if God is your refuge. Right? It's, it's the anchor when we're tossed and thrown about by the winds and storms of suffering and isolation and depression uh, or opposition and all kinds of other stuff. When we're tempted to walk away, we have an anchor that will not let us go. It will not let our soul go. What assurances do you have? What assurance of salvation? God has promised it. God has sworn it on oath. What more assurance do you need than that? Yeah, but what if this happens and what if that happens and what if God has promised and God cannot lie? And then there's a third cause for assurance and that is God's son himself, which is, who the whole letter has been urging us to cling to and never abandon, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our assurance. Jesus is our confidence because Jesus has gone before us. On our behalf, he enters the inner sanctuary. He's, he's blazed the trail to heaven. He's gone there as our high priest, not like the whole priests of, uh, of this world, be they the Israelite ones who were better than most, but you know they were just sinners like us and so they really couldn't help us out. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He offers himself as the one true sacrifice, the perfect vessel of salvation, entering heaven, pleading our case, a high priest, well, in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've got to work that out and there's going to be a bit of work, but we'll come to that next week. Suffice to say for now that Jesus, as our priest, as this priest, knows exactly who he's representing when he stands before his Father in heaven and pleads your case. Jesus knows exactly for whom he died and for whom he rose again. 
Do you think that Jesus is going to be surprised on the last day uh, and when it comes around and people are standing and some people are there and some people aren't, he's going, oh, I thought they would be in, but they're not. Well, I didn't see that. Well, you're here. No way. <laughs> no, I didn't, didn't see you. He's not like that. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly who he's saving. He knows he's got you on his heart. So take the warning, never turn your back on Jesus. Never spurn him, never walk away because there's no hope anywhere else. Take the warning, but then look to true hope, where true hope lies, to your confidence, to where assurance is found. That's a reason for joy and a reason to go hard in godliness in this life, a reason to stand firm in your faith, a reason to never give up. A reason to keep encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ, even during lockdown. Give them a call. Make sure you're not just being self-centered. Make sure you're not just wallowing in misery and despair either. So for your encouragement and for theirs, make some calls. So what do we do with those who we know who have turned their back on Jesus and walked away in the past? You know, my, my two friends who introduced me to Jesus all those years ago, uh, but which have fallen into sin, and they've walked away from him. Am I allowed to pray for them? That they come back to Christ? Is this passage preventing me from... No, it's not. Of course we pray. We plead to God that he might bring them back, that he might open their eyes to their sin and they might come to Christ in repentance of faith. And, and we chase them. We beg them. We warn them. We love them. And just like we would do for anyone else. Because there's no hope for anyone outside of Christ. And we do it knowing that what is impossible for man is possible for God. You remember who taught that? Our Lord Jesus Christ, our King and our Saviour. What is impossible for man is entirely possible for God. Trust him. Father, This is a challenging passage. You're asking us to be adult in our thinking about falling away and to work at hard theological issues and questions like who's Melchizedek. We pray, please, that you might help us to do that work, to never be satisfied with not understanding this part of your word or any part of your word, that we might wrestle with it, that we might see how the pieces fit together. We pray that even if we have a childlike faith now, it will be an adult faith that you'll be growing that in us and help us never to walk away. We beg that you might help us to cling to those things that give us assurance, the transformed life that you're working in us, that we are not the people we once were. Your promise, which is unbreakable, and your son, who is magnificent, who is our priest, who will never let us down, the anchor for our soul. And Father, we beg for those who whether they were really believers or not in the past, who is so sad that they have walked away. Father, save them. Help us to pray. Help us to know what to do. Help us to know how to point them to Christ. We pray for our neighbours and our friends who've never known Christ, that you might save them too. Help us to know what to pray and what to say and what to do in their case as well. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us a love 
for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we might protect each other from walking away and give us a love for everyone else that we might point them to where the only true hope is, Jesus Christ, the King and Saviour. Amen.